You'll join me in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. This morning we continue in our series through the book of Ruth. We'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 14 through 23 this morning. If you're using the Blue ESV Bible, that is on page 223. Ruth chapter 2, verses 14 through 23. The title of our sermon this morning is Gleaning. And our key words for our worshipers and training are kindness, redeemer, and men. Uh, There was a story a while back in the news in Chicago about a young man by the name of Trenton Lewis. Uh, Trenton had a job at UPS. He was loading trucks for deliveries to go out early in the morning to give everyone everything they ordered on Amazon the night before. Uh, He had to be at work by 4 a.m. every morning, but Trenton lived several miles away from the UPS warehouse. And so every day that he worked, Trenton would leave his house before midnight and he would walk over three hours through the rain, through the cold, through some of the roughest neighborhoods in the United States to make sure that he got to work on time. And his boss has said he was never late and he has never missed a shift. Well, one of the UPS drivers learned what Trenton was doing to get to and from work every day. And so he, he knew how hard of a worker Trenton was and how much he had given to his job and what a great employee that he was for the business. So Trenton had a family at home. He couldn't let them down. And so all the other employers got together and without Trenton knowing it, they put some of their money together over several months and were able to buy him a car. And so one day in the middle of their shift, one of the workers told Trenton they were having a staff meeting out in the parking lot. And when he walked out, they handed him a set of keys and revealed the car that they had purchased for him. In an interview with the local news, he said, they just handed me the keys and I thought, this, this cannot be mine. There's no way this is mine. My heart just dropped. This can't be real. And now Trenton doesn't have to walk for three hours each way. He's able to drive to work in about 30 minutes. And he still makes it to work on time every single day. Now the thing I love about this story with Trenton is that he didn't ask for any help. He was just doing what he had to do to make sure that he was fulfilling his obligations as a husband and as a father. Trenton was serious about what it means to be a man. And nothing, not even six hours of walking every day before and after his his shift of hard work was going to stop him. And if you watch the interview with him as he's talking about what his co-workers did for him, you immediately know that he never thought that he was worthy of what they had given to him. He didn't think that this was something that he deserved. It's not something that he earned. He was hired to do a job. He did his job. He happened to do it extremely well. He was paid for his time. And so it wasn't part of his pay. But the people around him who saw what what he was like and who he was. They saw the kind of man he was, what he was made of, and so they responded. And that's the beauty of it all, isn't it? The unworthiness. The unworthiness that comes by a gracious response. The kindness that is shown to him that anyone who provided for his need would would have wanted shown to them 
as well. I love stories like this because whether people recognize it or not, they're unwittingly displaying the truth about God. They're showing what grace is in a very small way. Now, as we continue in our series through the book of Ruth this morning, I want to remind us that last week that I I opened by telling us some of the stories of Cinderella throughout history. The Cinderella story, it has endured through the ages because it is the optimal story. It's the story of the Bible from start to finish. But it's also the story that we see in smaller portions throughout the Bible, showing us time and time again that it is this story, this pattern of story that God has chosen to work throughout all of mankind. And we most certainly see that with the book of Ruth, don't we? A young, widowed, Moabite woman from another land. She now comes into Bethlehem. She's with her, her widowed mother-in-law. And, and we left her last time standing in the middle of a field, having reaped some of the grain of the field, this field that she was providentially brought into that happened to belong to a man by the name of Boaz. And we saw that Boaz was a godly man. And he immediately upon arriving to check on the work, to check on his workers, he looks across the field and he takes notice of this young girl, Ruth. And so God brought them to each other's attention. And what we're going to recognize is that there was an obvious attraction between the two of them. But before we get there, remember Boaz told Ruth in verses 8 and 9, Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. He was providing for her needs, her food, her protection. She was no longer going to be left to the scraps of food that were left after everyone else gleaned. She wasn't left to go to the outer perimeter of the field to gather. No, she was going to walk with Boaz's reapers, reaping along with them. She was also allowed to drink from Boaz's well. She was under the protection of Boaz's men. And remember Ruth's response? She was surprised that Boaz even noticed her, right? In verse 10, she bowed down on the ground and said, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? It's that sense of unworthiness. She knew she was unworthy. He didn't owe her anything, and yet he gave her far more than anything she could ever have expected. She was just handed the keys to the car that she could drive to work instead of walking each and every day. Now, before we get into our text this morning, I want to point out one more thing that we see Ruth saying in verse 13. She said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Again, what is she expressing here? She's expressing her unworthiness. She's sort of begging the question, why are you being so good to me? This isn't something you owe me. This isn't something that I've asked for. This isn't something I've I've worked for. Why are you doing this for me? It is so kind. It is so gracious. I am unworthy. 
And really, who is Ruth? Who, who is it that, that anyone at all in Bethlehem would pay any attention to her or be concerned with her circumstances? She's unworthy. And yet, Boaz didn't stop there. So let's begin reading in verse 14, and we'll see our first point this morning in verses 14 through 16, that the unworthy are invited to the table. Look at verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Now, as believers, we, we mentioned last week that we really do get a sense of what Ruth was feeling in her unworthiness, don't we? Especially when we are new believers. When we're new believers, when the Lord first saves us, particularly those who have, have been saved from a lifetime of, of recklessness and debauchery and, and hedonism, all these things, if they're in our background, there's always this sense of this absolute unworthiness that the Lord in any way would have anything to do with me. The first time you approach the Lord's table or when you see others being baptized or when you're baptized yourself or when you hear the gospel afresh, this sense of unworthiness is something that all of us as believers can understand because of who we are. And, and we know who we are in light of who God is and what God has done. And specifically what He has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, and yet while we are unworthy in our own eyes, we are worthy we are more than worthy in the eyes of God. We see this very thing here with Boaz and his invitation of Ruth to come to the table. This stranger, this foreigner who came from far off, she's invited to the table. She's given a seat at the table alongside everyone else. She wasn't told to sit off on the side. No, she, not only, not only is, that, is she at the table, but Boaz says, eat some of this bread. Here, take the bread, eat some of this, dip it into the wine. You see, she has access to the bread. She has access to his cup, and it's right there for her to partake of alongside everybody else. And it doesn't even end there. It says then that he passed to her roasted grain. So now she's being given more to eat. And notice it says very specifically that it was Boaz who passed it to her. It wasn't some servant. It wasn't, it wasn't one of the other workers. It was Boaz himself serving Ruth. And, and still yet, it doesn't even end there. It says that she had so much food that she was satisfied and she even had some left over. He gave her a to-go box. Now remember... All of the details in the Bible matter, and, and this is going to matter later in the text, that she had this, this to-go box to take home. She didn't leave it on the table on accident. She brought it with her. That matters. We're going to see that come up a little bit later. 
But all of this is just so much like the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? You and I, unworthy, a people unworthy of the blessings of God, unworthy of the provision of God, unworthy of the protection of God, and yet even in the midst of our unworthiness, he says, come, come and sit at my table, come and dwell among my people, and come, don't just come, but but take of my body and eat, and take of my blood and drink, come, all of you, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, all of you who are sinners, there is nothing, there is nothing in your life that will keep me from inviting you to my table, and I will make you whole, and I will make you a new creation, and in doing so, Yes, you in yourself are unworthy, but I have died. I have given of my lifeblood that you might live. I have given of myself that you might be made worthy. That you who are guilty of all of your sin will before the great judge of all the universe be declared not guilty. And isn't it like the Lord Jesus Christ that it's not just that he says come to the table when all of us are done and you can have the leftovers, you can have the crumbs. Oh no. Oh no, you come and you take from the loaf of bread yourself and you dip into the wine and here have some grain as well and keep eating until you are satisfied and then take some to go with you. Isn't this just like the Lord Jesus Remember when he, when he came and he saw the multitudes who had wanted to hear him preach and he saw their need and they were all hungry and he said to his disciples, what do you have? What can we give to them? And they said, all we have is, is these five loaves of bread and these, and these two fish. And there's, there's 5,000 people. And what did the Lord Jesus do? He, he multiplied the food and they continued to serve and they continued to serve. And you get the sense that the people were just overwhelmed with the amount of food that they were getting, 5,000 men. And so it could have been up to 10,000, 15,000 people with all the women and children and they were fed until they were satisfied. And then what does the text tell us? That The disciples went around and they collected up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. You see, this is the way of the Lord Jesus, that he doesn't just give to us. He doesn't just say, come and have the crumbs, come and taste the leftovers. It was a good meal. Maybe you can get a little bit up off the plate and and try it and see what we enjoyed. No, he says, come and sit at the table and have a full portion and have more. And when you think you've had enough, I will give you more and more and more. And the Lord continues to pour it on to his people. This is the way of our Lord Jesus. Now notice, Ruth had been filled, but what does she do? She gets up and immediately she goes back to work. She's absolutely committed to what she's doing there. And Boaz continues to take notice. He continues to serve here, this time offering her provision. Notice what else he says. He says, don't glean from the leftovers. No, glean from among the sheaves. Also, don't don't just take what you have. Go over there to the bundles. These are large bundles. If you think of maybe uh, when you see those round bales of hay, go over to one of those bundles and pull out some of what's there, some of what my workers have gathered. Take that as well. Just, Just take it with you. 
He just continues to pile it on, doesn't he? More and more and more. He gives and he gives and he gives. Brothers and sisters, some of you are here this morning and you are feeling very unworthy. You have a very deep sense of your unworthiness. If you're a believer, it may be because of some sin in your life, maybe unconfessed sin or something that has gone on this week and it is just grieving you right now. Or maybe it's because you're not grasping the fullness of the gospel and all of its implications, grasping the true depth and reality of the forgiveness that is offered to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us have gone through this past week and can number many of our sins, and many of them have been committed without even our thinking about it. And yet, what does the Bible tell us? That when we truly understand the gospel, when we truly grasp what it means that the Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect, law-fulfilling life in our place, that the biggest issue, the biggest issue isn't that I sinned this week. The biggest issue is that Christ has obeyed on my behalf. And by faith, I can look to Him And his obedience can be counted as mine. His obedience, his worthiness credited to my account. And then Jesus dying on a cross, giving of his life, shedding his blood, having his body broken, taking my place. Yes, I've sinned, and yes, I deserve the punishment, the full wrath of God. I have sinned against the holy, holy, holy God who has created me. And yet Christ, Christ has taken my place. Christ has died for me. Christ has stood where I belong, condemned, put to death, that I need not be put to death, that I need not die, but that I could know life everlasting. You see, when we know what Christ has accomplished for us in the gospel, and when we know that by faith, as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that all that he has accomplished for his people applies to us, and that the Lord is not on his throne looking at us with a a dour frown, but with a smiling face because we are his children. We can delight, and we can rejoice, even though we know in and of ourselves we are very unworthy. But to God, we are beyond worthy because Christ has stood in our place. And so we together can be invited to the table, outsiders as we are, come and eat and drink. Now maybe your unworthiness comes about you and you have a sense of it because you're not a Christian. And this call is to you that the Lord Jesus would say, come, without money, without money, come. Without works, come. Without anything you have to offer, without your own sense of righteousness, come. You don't need to clean yourself up. You can't. Just come. Come and eat. And I will provide it. And I will continue to give it. And you come only by faith. Only by trusting 
that I am who I say I am and I will accomplish what I say I will accomplish and in my righteousness alone shall you stand. Come and stand upon me and stop standing upon yourself. If you're not a Christian this morning, that is what the Lord Jesus calls you to. Come to him by faith and stand upon him alone that you might eat and drink the bread of life, the water of life forever and ever. Now, before we go further in our text, I want to think about a few things together in a very practical sense as we consider this relationship between Ruth and Boaz as it's blossoming here. The beginning of this relationship and what it looks like as it's developing. What we saw last time in the text is that Boaz indicated that he knows exactly who Ruth is. He told her that he had heard about her, probably around town. He heard who she was and what she had done coming with Naomi, coming all the way from Moab with her mother-in-law, leaving her own family, leaving her own land, and most importantly, he knew that she had chosen to leave the false gods of the Moabites and to seek refuge under the wings of Yahweh. She forsook everything in Moab to take up life in Bethlehem among the people of God under the refuge of the Lord. But what else? He also saw that she was a hard worker. She had the right commitment in life, a rightly oriented heart. She was was out there not just for herself, but for her mother-in-law. She's working in the hot sun. She's doing hard work all day without breaks to get the job done. All that she did was clearly attractive to Boaz. Now, there was most certainly a physical attraction here. That's undeniable in the context, so we shouldn't downplay that. But more important is everything else that attracted Boaz to Ruth. Now, sometimes, as Christians, we like to sort of downplay physical attraction, so much so that we talk like it doesn't matter in a relationship. That's silly. We all know it plays a role, and it should. God created us to recognize beauty in one another. And that's a faculty that we all have. And our attraction to different people is different for all of us. And it's a wonderful thing that we have this variety of attraction. But it needs to be handled in a God-honoring way. But the important thing here, listen up, single guys, you especially, It's primarily that Boaz was attracted to Ruth, not physically, but in what he saw about who she was as a person. This is wife material, and it was immediately obvious to him. Listen, I know guys who who married a woman and would admit that she was a little bit crazy, but she was a lot attractive. So they overlooked a little crazy because they liked a lot of of attractive, and then in the end they were miserable and it didn't last. Listen, guys, don't overlook crazy. That's how you end up in the news. Ladies, same thing. Now listen, I know not every guy can grow a glorious mane. And some who can need a little work keeping it clean. I get that. We can work on that. The Lord's blessing some of our brothers with baby faces. It's not ideal, I understand. But the greater attraction needs to be on what's lasting and what's on 
on what's most important. What kind of person is this? What do they do and how do they do it? What do they think and what do they believe and how does that play out in their life? Are they lazy or do they work hard and have a plan? Are they wandering around in life without purpose or are they dedicated to the most important things in life? Are they committed to the things of God wholeheartedly or is it just maybe something that's peripheral to them? Listen, I've met a lot of guys who all of a sudden have really almost immediately become interested in the things of God. They become these these amazing theologians because it just so happens that the girl they're interested in is a committed Christian. Ladies, listen to me. If some dude is not already pursuing the Lord, that's not going to change because somehow the Holy Spirit is going to just deliver him because he's interested in you. You are not called to be a missionary to all the lost guys who pay attention to you and then all of a sudden have an almost miraculous interest in church like they've never had before. What we want to see here is what we see with Ruth and what we see with Boaz. We've seen what kind of people Boaz and Ruth are. And we have some pretty heavy hitters here, don't we? This is a story for the ages. I'm not saying, I'm not saying they need to be, you know, fully developed as believers. But interest in the Lord doesn't begin day one of a relationship. It needs to be working in them. If, if you are a Christian, those are the people that we're looking to, those who are believers, those who will be mutually edifying to us, those who will help us to walk faithfully in the Lord, that together we're walking together. And notice how Boaz does this. Notice something really important. He doesn't try and get Ruth off on her own, does he? He doesn't go to her and say, hey, let's take a walk. Let's go, just the two of us, let's go take a walk. No, they're in the protection of a community here. Boaz begins to win the favor of Ruth by lovingly serving her and providing for her and offering protection for her. He's not trying to take advantage of her weakness by getting her alone, enticing her with empty words. No, he's showing her with his life what he's made of and what she means to him right here and now. Single guys, again, take note. Boaz is a smooth operator in the best sense. Most importantly, because he's respectful of her as a woman, he treats her with utmost care and concern. Now, I don't care. I don't care what the feminists want to say. I have a wife who has known me for almost half my life. I have two daughters. I have a mom. I know all the women in our church, so I've learned something. The feminists are liars. Women really do want to be treated respectfully and to be taken care of and to be provided for and doted on and protected. Right, ladies? It is not toxic masculinity to recognize your responsibility as a man. To take the initiative to pursue her and in doing so to treat her well. And by the way, fellas, notice who bought dinner. If you're going to take her out and then ask her to pay for your own dinner, just let her stay home and come see me. I've got something for you. 
It's going to sting a little, but you'll be better for it. When I preached our series on image, when we talked about image, a few women came up to me and said, you were a lot harder on the guys than you were on the ladies. Well, listen, I may not be an old man yet, but I wasn't born yesterday, all right? Guys need to be roughed up sometimes, though. And if they're going to be the kind of men who pursue women in God-honoring, Christ-exalting ways, it might just be that the right hand of fellowship upside the head is what they need to keep them on track. It's good. It's a good practice, and I'm very happy to help deliver it. All right. Our second point this morning, verses 17 through 20. God is faithful to his covenant with his people. Look at verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, Naomi is just shocked with what Ruth has gathered. She brought home an entire ephah. Now, that's not particularly impressive to us at first because we don't know what an ephah is, but the best estimates are that she gathered and carried home between 30 and 50 pounds of grain. Now think about that. These are two small women at a time when people really didn't eat that much food. We're talking about several weeks worth of food for the two of them, and she did it all in a single day by hand and carried it home. And of course, what would have been Naomi's first thought? Yes, Yes, she was a bitter woman because of her circumstances. We've seen that. But we have no reason to doubt that she did love the Lord, and so she saw that all of this was from the hand of God. She was blown away by the provision and by the faithfulness of God to them. And so what happens? Well, well what happens? <laughs> this is a book of the Bible named after a woman, and the two main characters are women, and one of them has taken interest in a guy. So what do you think happened when she got home? They started talking. The narrator didn't even have time to insert any additional comments because he was busy copying down what they were saying. I want you to notice something. Naomi says right here in in verse 20, May he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. Now the wording is a little bit tricky because to whom is the word whose? referring to? Is it Boaz or is it the Lord? It will help if I ask the question differently. It helps us think about this. Who is the one who has not stopped showing kindness or covenant faithfulness to the living and the dead? Well, we realize it wouldn't be referring to Boaz. 
And even if, it, it, even if that would make sense, there's no indication that Naomi really would know anything about the pattern of who Boaz was and what he was doing. So the context leads us only to the one conclusion that makes sense, namely that the Lord is the one of whom she speaks. This is wonderful because what the Lord did is to use Ruth through one day of hard work when she went out empty and she came back full The Lord went before her, and he used that to persuade Naomi that perhaps she wasn't justified in her bitterness. The Lord was able, the Lord was willing, and the Lord did provide for their physical needs after all. Nor was it only her needs that were being met. The word living is plural. It's encompassing both Naomi and Ruth. And that's important because remember back in chapter 1, remember Naomi said when she came to Bethlehem, she said, I came back empty completely empty. She made no mention of Ruth by her side, Ruth's faithfulness to her. Well, here for the first time, for the very first time since leaving Moab, Ruth is included in the family of Naomi, where the Lord has shown faithfulness. Now, we've seen God's faithfulness in his providence, but there's something else here for us to see how God provides. God is working through a process that he established in the Old Covenant law with a person who was willing to act as what is called a kinsman redeemer. Naomi is alluding to that in verse 20. A kinsman redeemer was someone who was, was obliged to buy back the relatives who fell into debt and had, had to sell themselves into slavery. Under certain circumstances, the kinsman redeemer also had an obligation to marry the widow and raise up a child if, if their brother had died uh, without, uh, without children. So if a, a woman was widowed and she didn't have children, uh, the brother could marry her so that she could have children so that she would have uh, a male in her household to care for her. So the idea was that an inheritance would continue to be associated with the name of the man who died. And this was a blessing from the Lord. This was a kindness, a provision from the Lord. Now, some of you ladies don't think it's too exciting, the thought of having to marry your husband's brother. Uh, But this was, in this uh, instance, this was a gracious provision of God that he would continue to provide for the family. Now, in this instance, though, with Naomi, the situation isn't exactly consistent with the obligations. We shouldn't assume Naomi was wrong back in chapter 1 when she said there wasn't anyone to care for them in Bethlehem because in the technical sense, Naomi, and especially Ruth as a foreigner, did not meet the requirements for a kinsman redeemer to redeem them. Boaz was not the brother to this dead man, to Elimelech. But describing him as a kinsman redeemer in this case seems to mean that he had some Uh, she had some sense that he understood a general family obligation toward Naomi. As for Ruth, the law didn't say anything about foreign women who married into the family. Any cheap lawyer could have found a thousand loopholes to get Boaz through the process uh, and get him off the hook if he wanted. But godliness isn't concerned about fulfilling the law for the sake of fulfilling the law, is it? 
Boaz wasn't a legal-hearted man. Boaz was filled with grace. Boaz was filled with loving kindness. Boaz had been the recipient of God's covenant faithfulness, and it was just overflowing into the lives of those around him. Boaz lived a life that went well beyond duty, that went well beyond obligation. Covenant faithfulness, that includes God's kindness to his people, and that is shown through Others. And of course, it's no mistake. It is no mistake that this position, this calling on a man to take up this role, is called him being a Redeemer. That's obviously a special name to us here at Redeemer Baptist Church. And of course, it points to the one who is the true Redeemer. The one who has taken all of the broken, all of the downtrodden, all of the dirty, all of the unworthy Cinderella's of the world, and he has redeemed us. He has made us his children. He has given us all of the great riches of the kingdom for our good, and he has said, what's mine is yours for the taking, that we can enjoy his bounty and his goodness and his faithfulness forever and ever. Well, lastly this morning, verses 21 through 23. Be thankful for the green grass that you're standing on. Look in verse 21. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, it may seem obvious that Naomi would respond to Ruth in the way that she does. Who in their right mind would not continue to go back to Boaz's fields and receive the provisions that he has offered? But that's that's the exact point that she's trying to bring out. Think of Naomi's past, her not-too-distant past with Elimelech, her husband. They had done exactly the opposite of what she's encouraging Ruth to do, right? Remember, they acted foolishly many years before. They ignored the Lord's constant covenant faithfulness and left the land that he had given to them so that they could move to Moab because they thought that they knew better. They thought that what they were going to find was going to be better than what the Lord had promised them. And so here, Naomi, having lived that experience, having walked through that herself, she's giving a warning to Ruth. She's telling her, what you have here, this is from the Lord. Don't go wandering off. Take it as the blessing that it is. We are such discontent, restless people, aren't we? especially living in a sanitized world and the opulence that we live in in the United States, no matter what the Lord blesses us with, we're still looking for more and better, right? When I was a teenager, I couldn't wait to move out of my parents' home. I wanted to do my own thing the way I wanted to do it without their rules, and so I did. When I graduated from high school, I started college in the fall, and I left with all my stuff, and I had no intention of ever going back, and I didn't. My parents, though, they were great. They, they never gave me any particular reason to want to leave or to need to leave. They provided far more for me than I could ever deserve. They gave me a lot of freedom. They loved me unconditionally. And yet, for me, 
the grass wasn't green enough. I had to go. And it took two failed years of college, a year of enlistment in the army at first before I got the right hand of fellowship across the head. And I had to sit down as a 20-year-old and write a letter to my parents and confess to them that I was chasing something that didn't exist. They had it all laid out in front of me, and I just knew I knew better. I didn't. I didn't know better. But that's our mindset, isn't it? Some of you here right now, that's your mindset in life. You're going to ignore the counsel of everyone around you, no matter what your circumstances are. Some of you young people, you despise your parents' counsel because you just know that they don't get it, that they don't feel your pain, that they don't know the struggle, that they don't get you, that they don't know what, what it's like that you can't even right now. Did you ever stop and think that it's all because they actually really, really love you and want for you far better than what you yourself would even know that they've lived through life, that they've had some struggles, that they've had some heartaches themselves, they've learned a few things that they want to help you avoid. I don't know any parents sitting in this room right now who make it a point every day to make decisions for you, their children, in a way that they're intentionally trying to make your life more difficult and as miserable as possible. That doesn't exist, at least in this room. So the really negative way to say what Naomi is saying to Ruth here is, make sure you get over yourself. Make sure you take full advantage of what is here in front of you. I've done otherwise. You don't want to go through that struggle that I went through. It is not worth it. Don't do it. The Lord has given all of us some very, very green, some very beautiful grass to stand on. Take notice of it and be thankful that he has given it to you. Well, the very last thing to note is that we get a quick glimpse of where all of this is headed. Notice the end of the last verse there. It says of Ruth, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Why is that important? Well, because what we've seen all throughout is that God keeps providing over and over and over again. He keeps providing And now we've seen this Cinderella story start to unfold before us, and we're reminded here that Ruth is yet without a husband for now. Things are going to change. Her prince is coming. God's timing is always perfect. Let's pray together. Father, again, we give you thanks for your word this morning. We give you thanks as a people who understand Oh, Lord, we understand our own unworthiness. We understand that we are a people, as we examine our own lives, that we are anxious, that we are are desperate for different circumstances, and we often fail to be thankful for all of the provision and all of the kindness that you've shown us, that's laid out before us. Most of all, the provision of you calling on us as we were far off strangers living in a distant land that you have said, come, sit at my table, eat of my bread, drink of my wine, 
and take all that I have given you and more, and I will continue to bless you. Lord, give us thankful hearts this morning as we consider our own unworthiness in ourselves and that Christ, by faith, all who trust in him have been made worthy. We pray, O God, that you would do all of this to the glory of your great name and for the good of your church. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.